I didn't get a chance to watch the, the Purdue-Ohio State game yesterday. Anybody know who won? Purdue won. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't think they were going to win. I'm just saying, I didn't think they were going to win. That must explain why all you guys have pee on your jackets today. <laughs> hey, I don't know if any of you know this, but this past, now you're, you're, <laughs> it was a <laughs> delayed reaction. All right. I don't know if you, any of you know this or not, but this past Tuesday was Boss's Day. Anybody know that? This past Tuesday was Boss's Day. Uh, that's pretty neat. My sweet, wonderful, beautiful, loving wife, uh, she sent me this. She said, uh, it's boss's day. Am I supposed to get my toddler a gift or is a gift card or just a card okay? And I thought, well, that's pretty true. <laughs> all right, that's, that's all the introduction you're going to get. We're jumping right into the sermon today, all right? So buckle up. It's our second week in a sermon series called A Church That Needs Corinthians. And, and here's what it's about. Have you ever read the book of 1 Corinthians or heard a sermon about 1 Corinthians and thought, man, this, this church is a mess? Now, this place is just an absolute mess. Well, you're not alone. Uh, the church in Corinth really was a mess. But we want to we be a church that needs to read the book of 1 Corinthians. Why? Because if we need to read a messy book, it means that we are reaching people who really need God. Luke got us started last week by reminding us that the focus is very simply Jesus. The focus of what we do here, the focus of the church is Jesus. And the church in Corinth was all wrapped up in a preacher debate. Right, the church in Corinth on one side of town said, I like to listen to Dave Stone. The church on the other side of Corinth said, I like to listen to Kyle Item. And the church on the other side of Corinth said, I like to listen to John Piper. Right? And, and they were just debating. Some of them liked Paul. Some of them liked Apollos. Some of them liked uh, Peter. But what Luke told us last week is it doesn't, doesn't matter who's doing the preaching as long as they are preaching Jesus. We don't apply that today. It doesn't matter if you go to church at Mount Tabor or Westview or Southern Hills or Northside or Paoli or Southeast. What matters is Jesus. What matters is Jesus. Today we're going to take that thought and we're going to apply it in a way, I don't know, maybe you've never heard it applied in a sermon this way before, um, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and I want you to hold on to that idea that what matters is Jesus. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to, I'm going to sum up what Paul has to say in this text we're going to be reading from. And, and it's very simply this, uh, don't sue another Christian. Don't sue another Christian, okay? Some of you think I'm joking, uh, but I told you that the church in Corinth was a messy place. And there were people in the church that were suing each other. And we don't know what the issues were. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But the way Paul talks about them, uh, it seems to indicate that these are minor issues. And we're not, we're not talking about a brain surgeon who operated on somebody while he was intoxicated, okay? We're, we're talking about a dispute over a fence row. We're talking about somebody who borrowed $100 and couldn't pay it back. We're talking about a minor fender bender and wondering whose insurance is going to pay for it. We're talking about troublesome, not tragic. And Paul's point here is, just don't sue another Christian. Don't do that, please. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1. 
By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, I'm also going to have it up here on the screen. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I'm saying, I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't, isn't there anyone in the church at all who's wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another right in front of the unbelievers. Can you detect? Paul's exasperation as he writes these words. I can almost just feel that he's disgusted to have to be saying this. I didn't think I'd have to go into this, but here we are. He's saying, don't sue another Christian. Instead of suing him, instead of going, I want my fence here, and I'm going to take you to court to make sure I get my way, Paul says, sit down with somebody from the church and figure this thing out. Just figure it out. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal to say, don't take another Christian to court? Obviously, we, we want justice, right? right this, this fence row is very clearly supposed to be here, but you want it here. you got three feet of my property. Why is, this, why is this such a big deal? We should want justice. We should want what's right, shouldn't we? Paul says it is a big deal deal Paul says it is a big deal in order to take a fellow Christian to court you have to ignore a lot first of all you've got to ignore the destiny of the church you have to ignore the church's grand future to worry about three feet in a fence row dispute or to worry about a hundred dollars in some minor debate we have to ignore the church's grand future. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't completely understand the theology of what Paul is saying here in verses 2 and 3. Uh, I don't understand it completely. Uh, I don't understand uh, how that's all going to look. I do understand what he's saying, so I, I want to show you verses 2 and 3. And even though I don't understand it fully, we're going to be able to draw a point here. He says, don't you realize that someday believers are going to judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world, can't you even decide these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that one day you're going to judge angels? So surely you should be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. Uh, like I said, I don't know what all of this means. It takes a, a smarter theological mind than mine to begin comprehending it. And even them, they don't agree. Um, so let me tell you what I do know. In some way, Christians will be a part of a judgment that will come on this world. Now, I don't know if that is uh, to be part of the final judgment when Jesus returns. Um, some theologians think that. It's problematic for me to believe that um, idea because the Bible indicates that I'm going to be judged at that time as well. So, you know, do I immediately go from the judgment seat to the judgment chair? I don't know. 
Okay, so that's why that one's problematic for me. The Catholic Church says, and I think this is a compelling argument, the Catholic Church says that this passage speaks to the fact that Christians judge the world now on a regular basis because of who they decide to share and not share Jesus with. So that's another opinion. Uh, Other theologians say that this text is referring to the fulfillment of a promise made in Daniel chapter 7 that says one day God will, uh, will give um, godly rulers and judges to rule over the whole world. Uh, a lot of theologians take this position, but just as many disagree with it. I don't know exactly how Christians are going to judge the world. I don't. And I understand even less about how Christians are going to judge angels. But here's what I do understand. In God's eternal kingdom, Christians will exercise great power. Christians will hold places of honor and influence, even judging over the angels. Paul's argument's real simple. If that's our destiny, if that's our grand future, if that's our eternity, we need to be able to figure out this little stuff now. You want your fence row here and your neighbor wants it there and you're arguing over it? In light of eternity, deal with that three feet. You had a fender bender and you're arguing about who's at fault and it's $150 worth of paint? In light of eternity, how important is that? Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. We have disagreements about what kind of worship music we like. Some of you like the newer songs. Some of you like the older hymns. Let me challenge both of you. The angels of heaven are content to spend all of their time saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There is something about the glory of God that once you see it, when you experience it, everything else just gets small. So let everything else be small. Let the small things be small. The fence row, the fender bender, the worship music, let it all be small underneath the God of creation and redemption. We're all different people. and We have different preferences. Some of you are IU fans. Seems like most of you are Purdue fans today. Some of you like to watch football on Sunday. Some of you are boycotting football on Sunday. Some of you plant Becks. Some of you plant Stewart. Some of you drive green tractors. Some of you drive red tractors. Worship music, communion, the clothes I wear, the clothes you wear, the length of service, all of it. We have different preferences. Let the small things be small because all of those things are just preference. The thing that matters Jesus. No matter what kind of worship music we like, we agree that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No matter what kind of worship music we like, no matter what kind of clothes we like to wear to church on Sunday, we believe that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. 
That's part of our great testimony, church, that we are different people. We come from different places and we go different places when we leave here and we do different things for a living and we think about the world differently. But the one thing that we agree completely on is Jesus. That's our testimony. And to lose that testimony is a powerfully destructive thing. Here's what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. He says, even to have these lawsuits, even to have these lawsuits with one another is deceit, or is, is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. He says, even if you have this lawsuit and you win, even if you get the fence row where you want it, you've already lost. Well, how's that? I have my fence in the right spot. I didn't have to pay for the repairs on my car. right? I, I won. Even if you win, you lose. You may have won in court, but you've lost something far more valuable. See, when you take a fellow believer to court over a fence row or a bad business deal, we don't need to wait for the judge to render his verdict. We've already lost. We've lost our ability to credibly tell somebody about the difference that Jesus makes in our life. We've lost our ability to say that our faith has made us joyful. We've lost our ability to say that we are a people of forgiveness. We've already lost. Paul's saying if you want to go to court over a few hundred dollars or a bad business deal, you're going to cost more than you could ever gain. You're going to cost yourself the ability to share your faith with someone. Because when the judge or the bailiff or the jury or the lawyers see two Christians fighting tooth and nail over small things, the natural question will become, if that's all the difference Jesus makes, do I need him? Roy Lauren said it this way. He said, if the church cannot solve the problem of personal relations within its own borders, then it's admitted its incapability to solve the problems of the world. There's more at stake than fence row. There's more at stake than a business deal or a little paint. So what do we do? We've got to start by remembering that it's all about Jesus. We start by remembering that it's all about Jesus. If our argument is about anything less than doctrine, it's worth solving immediately. Paul says it. He says it's better to suffer an injustice than it is to ruin your testimony. So here's the principle I want to give you on this subject. Preserve your witness, even if it means swallowing your pride. Preserve your witness, even if it means swallowing your pride. Now let's, let's bring this to our level. Uh, I don't think there's any lawsuits going on in the church. If, if I'm wrong, please, please correct me. Um, but I don't think there's any lawsuits going on right now. And I pray that there never will be. But there are things that we disagree on. Uh, there, are, there are things that wedge themselves between us and other people. Sometimes they're little things that eat at us until they're big things. And sometimes they're big things that we have to deal with before they ruin relationships. 
We may not be involved in any lawsuits, but there are people who don't return your phone call. There are people who say they'll do something and then they don't. There are people who don't agree with you politically. There are people who value different things than you do. There are people who borrow things and don't return them. There are people who insult you. There are people who cheat you. And there may even be people who steal from you. When we don't deal with that, it grows. All on its own. It doesn't need to be watered. It doesn't need to be tended. It doesn't need sunlight. It doesn't need any attention. When we don't deal with those things, it grows. And one day... Three years later, you realize, I don't really like somebody, and it's because they didn't return my phone call three years ago. And somebody asks, hey, how do you feel about so-and-so? You guys go to church together, right? Yeah, we go to church together, and I don't really like them. And instead of being able to show off the bond of unity that we have in Jesus, we end up saying, I don't really like them. Well, if they don't even get along with each other, maybe this church thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. See, Paul says it's better to suffer an injustice than it is to ruin your witness. So whatever it is that's keeping you from a healthy relationship with someone else, sort it out. Fix it. Because no matter what you disagree on, what you agree on is far more important. See, no matter what you disagree on, what you do agree on is Jesus. And that's a trump card. By the way, that's just the outward conflict, right? That's just how um, our lack of reconciliation affects those around us. It has an inward effect as well. Uh, there's an inner conflict that's just as critical to resolve. And see, here's, here's how I want to describe it to you. Anything that comes between you and a fellow Christian is something that comes between you and God. Sounds like kind of a big deal, right? Some of you are going, whoa, wait a minute. I don't see any scripture reference there. Uh, this is just Tony's opinion, right? There's no scripture reference for this. Well, you're right. Uh, I paraphrased it and made it seem a little bit nicer. Let me tell you what Jesus says. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Well, you, Okay, okay, well that's bad, but that just says you got to forgive those who sin against you, not those who, who wrong us or, or make us feel bad. Well, if we're supposed to forgive those who sin against us, doesn't it seem even more likely that we should be able to forgive those who uh, dishonor our preferences? There's a 2015 interview with John Piper, and he was asked about these two verses. A young man said, hey, I just read about forgiveness in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and it sent chills down my spine. Is this uh, a straightforward statement of Jesus, or is this like allegory or parable? Because Jesus did a lot of parable. And here's how John Piper answered. He said, if the forgiveness received is so ineffective that we're bent on holding unforgiving grudges, we are not saved. Our job as Christians is to forgive each other. Not because a compromise has been reached. Not because our offender is appropriately shamed. Not because the one who wronged us is humbled. But because we have been forgiven of so much more. Not because they deserve it. Not because 
they've made penance, not because they have repented, not because they came to us on bended knee with an apology and a tear, but because we've already been forgiven of way more than they can ever offend against us. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Not your fence row, not your business deal, not your preferences, not our sense of propriety. What matters is Jesus. Here's why. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or or, or any thieves or greedy people or drunkards or or the abusive or those who cheat people, none of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. We kind of like those verses. You can just be honest with yourselves. You kind of like those verses, don't you? Um... It's the inspiration for many a picket sign. Um, we, we just kind of like those verses. We say, see, this is a very succinct rendition of what we are against. And don't get me wrong, it is valuable to know that. It's valuable to know why the Bible speaks against these things, why those things corrode our character. It's important to know why idolatry and sexual sin and and drunkenness and homosexuality and all of those things are against God's holy nature. It's appropriate for us to understand those things, but we like verses 9 and 10 for a different reason. A darker reason. We love those verses because people like to have somebody they think they're better than. People like to have somebody they think they're better than. And I know our tendency is to reject that, but I want you to think about it, pray about it, spend a little bit of time with that thought. People like to have somebody that they think they're better than. If that's not true for you, praise God. But for the most part, we like to think we're better than somebody. Now, we don't want to be better than everybody. We don't want to be better than everybody. We want to be better than somebody, though. And here's why. Because when we're focused on somebody else's flaws, it's a lot easier to ignore our own. That's why we like verses 9 and 10. It's easy to say, don't do those things. But Paul reminds us, some of you were like that. We like verses 9 and 10 because it says, aha, don't do that, don't do that. But the very next thing Paul says is, some of you were like that too. Let me explain to you what he means there he means all of us have sinned and fallen short of god's glory all of us doesn't matter what your sin is it brings the same results and maybe your neighbor struggles with homosexuality and you just lie sometimes same result same degree of uncleanness before a holy god same separation from god some of you were once like that but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God, but you were washed. Some of you were once like that, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus. And that's what the church is about. So let me tell you how I view the church. This is what I think of the church. The church is people who need Jesus, 
Raise your hand if that's you. Telling people who need Jesus that, oh, yeah, go to the closest window. Just give me one of these towards the closest. Very good. The church is people who need Jesus telling people who need Jesus about Jesus. That's what the church is. I'm a person who needs Jesus, and you're a person who needs Jesus, and that's why we're here. Because each of us had a moment in our lives where we realized that we weren't good enough. Sin had gotten the best of us, and we realized that we were powerless to fix it. In a moment of humility, we said, Jesus, I need you because I'm not good enough and I can't be. And what happened? You were washed. You were baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you received the gift of God's Holy Spirit and you began a new life. See, when we're baptized, God does some amazing things. First, He sanctifies us. Now, there are two different kinds of uh, sanctification that we talk about. One we talk about a lot. It's that uh, lifelong process of looking more like Jesus. Uh, But Paul's describing a one-time event here. So let me tell you what he means when he says that He sanctified us. It's the act of being made holy. This is the moment when we become a part of God's family. We are no longer a lowly slave to sin, controlled by our impulses, chained to the things that will bring about our demise. We are no longer a slave to sin. We are much more than that. We are a child of God. We are family of the King. We are royal. And not just any king. Not just a king who rules a kingdom. Not just a king who rules a great kingdom. We are children of the king who created the heavens and the earth and upholds that kingdom by nothing more than his powerful word. We are in that family. When we are baptized, we become a part of that family. In that moment, we are sanctified. Family. And it is, in a word, amazing. Baptism, God sanctifies us. He also justifies us. All the things we've done wrong, all of them, are no longer held against us. All the things that stick in your mind and make you cringe, all of the things that you just wish never happened, all of the things that make you feel sick in your stomach when you think about that you've done in your past. All of the people you've heard, all of the lies that you've told, all of your brokenness and sin. When you are baptized, God looks at you and says, I forgive you. You're not guilty anymore. It's done. This is the incredible reality of what Jesus has done for every Christian. Here's Paul's point. If you've been forgiven this dramatically, then whatever problems you have with another person, fix it. Fix it. So forgive them, even if you don't think they deserve it. Because we've been forgiven, even though we didn't deserve it. None of us in this room deserve God's forgiveness, but we've been forgiven or forgiveness is only that far away. And maybe you're here today and you need God's forgiveness. I'm going to give you a time to accept that. 
You want to begin your relationship with God and become a part of His royal family? I said that happens in baptism. Hey, look, there's water right there. Why shouldn't you be baptized? So if you'd like to, I think today's the best day in the world to make that happen. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing a song. And during that song, if you need to be baptized, if you feel God working on your heart today, why don't you come forward and we'll rejoice together.